Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I'm honored each week to serve as your host and interviewer. I kind of feel like On Leadership has now become sort of the Hollywood walk of leadership fame because we are so honored after 100 plus interviews now each week to be increasingly able to have access to some of the greatest leadership and success minds of our generation. Today is that exact day. I am honored to welcome Jack Canfield to On Leadership. Jack's joining us from his home in Santa Barbara, California. Jack, as you know, is the co-creator of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. He has authored or co-authored over 200 books, which have sold over 500 million copies. I mean, let that sit for a moment. Can you imagine being in the presence of someone who'd sold one million copies, or in the case of Dr. Covey, 30 million copies, but Jack's books have sold over 500 million copies in over 50 languages. He holds the Guinness World Record for the most number of books on the same day on the New York Times list. I think it was eight. We're in the presence of greatness today. Jack Canfield, welcome to On Leadership. My pleasure, thank you, Scott. I mean, I, I'm always getting shown up, but I think your library and your set actually beats ours. Tell us a bit about what's going on behind you back there. Well, I've read over 3,000 books in my career. I read about, uh, I was reading a book a day. I took a speed reading class in college. Now I read a book, you know, two every week, something like that. And um, basically that's what you're seeing behind me are some of the ones that I often refer to in my research. Jack, I would argue to any extent that I've had in my own life as an author, a podcaster, as a leader, as a parent, as a spouse, as a, a guy who speaks occasionally, it's all come from my own reading. Like you, I've been a voracious reader my whole life. Magazines, all in print. Books, all in print. Talk to the audience. I mean, you are by arguably every measure the most successful author in the space in history, if not the most, one of the most. What is the correlation between your voracious reading throughout your life, even now um, in your crescendo years, and the success that you've had with um, your influence around the world? Well, I once read the quote that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. And so basically, for me, W. Clement Stone, who was my mentor, he was a good friend in Napoleon Hill who wrote Think and Grow Rich, said that you can learn from other people's experience, OPE he called it. You know, we often talk about investing with OPM, other people's money, but we have so much out there that we're learning every single day. So many new technologies are coming along for healing, for getting rid of limiting beliefs, for overcoming fear, new um, ways to think and to uh, handle you know, our fears and so on and so forth. So for me, I read in the areas of finance, of psychology, of spirituality, of relationships, communication skills, leadership, love, all those things. And I, you know, I couldn't have written so many books if I hadn't read so many books and then applied them to my life. What you don't want to have is what a lot of people have is a lot of books on a shelf and they have what they call shelf esteem where they're not actually mm. putting into practice what they've learned. <laughs> so the key is you want to make sure that if you get one good idea out of a book that you actually do it. So it's more about what you apply than it is about what you know. I love this idea of shelf esteem. I have to be thoughtful about that. Jack, your current book, The Success Principles, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be is a masterful compendium of wisdom, practicality, ideas. In many cases, you are an aggregator. Throughout all the books that you've written and the courses that you've taught and the speeches that you've given, how much would you just attribute is your sort of own original thinking versus, equally as important, 
the ability to assimilate wise ideas from wise people and practice them in your own life? I would say 80% of it comes from other ideas and other people's experiences and then assimilating them into my life, often making them my own, combining two things that were never combined before. Most creativity occurs when you take something you know and something else you know and you put them together into one thing. You know, all the Chicken Soup for the Soul books were mostly stories written by other people. Right. The first book, I would say maybe 20 of them were my own experience, and the rest were other people. And we said at the end of the book, if you have a story, send it in. Maybe we'll do a sequel. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's 230 sequels later that people started sending in us stories. And then we got really good at figuring out how to edit them and how to pick the right ones. It was a whole scientific method behind that. But as far as the Success Principles book goes, I would say, you know, most of that was things I learned from other places, applied them to my life, and then as a result of that, created a system. It's a system of success. And, and you know, W. Clement Stone once wrote a book called The Success System That Never Fails. And I believe that's the same with this. If you have the combination to a lock, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, young or old, live in a suburban area, urban area, or the you know country. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or Muslim or Jewish or any other religion or non-religious. If you know the combination to a lock, the lock has to open. The problem is most people are missing some of the numbers. And so the success principles, there are 67 principles of success in that book. That's a lot. I don't expect everyone to master every one of those principles, but there are 17 in there that are critical, that are like the numbers in that combination. And if you do the right thing in the right way, in the right order, at the right time, then you create success. And unfortunately, most people either are doing things the wrong way, they think they know what they're doing, but they're doing it inaccurately, or they're doing it in the wrong sequence, or they're just things are missing. So you can work really, really hard to open the combination to a lock, but if you're missing one number, it doesn't matter how many times you turn that key, that lock's not going to open. So I see a lot of people suffering, not getting the success they want because they're missing a few key factors. Jack, let's dive right into that. Uh, one of your first stories in the book is also one of the lessons that you learned from W. Clement Stone. And perhaps anybody under the age of maybe 40 may not be familiar with who he is. Would you right. share a bit about his legacy and this lesson you learned from him on taking 100% responsibility? I was tempted sure. to actually read it word for word because the conversation <laughs> is profound. Would you just reintroduce us to Clement Stone and uh, the conversation that was so transformative to your own success in life? Sure. W. Clement Stone was worth about $600 million back in the 1970s, so he'd be a billionaire by today's inflationary standards. And he was the head of something called Combined Insurance Company. He had a foundation, which I worked for, called the W. Clement Jesse V. Stone Foundation. And my job that I was hired to do was to work in the Achievement Motivation Program. How do you go out into the school system and motivate kids to learn, motivate, teach teachers how to motivate kids? Because a lot of people weren't motivated. And when I went in for my first job interview, well, actually, I was hired already. And then he interviewed me just to kind of onboard me. And he said, um, do you take 100% responsibility for your life? And I said, I think so. And he said, well, is there a yes or no answer, son? So do you or don't you? I said, well, Mr. Stone, I'm not even sure what that means. He said, well, do you ever blame anybody for anything? I said, well, of course. He said, do you ever complain about anything? I said, yeah. He said, do you ever make excuses? I said, yes. He said, well, then you don't take 100% responsibility. 
In other words, 100% responsibility means that you act as if everything that occurs to you, all the results you have, your health, your wealth, your happiness, um, the, how long you live, all of that is the result of your behavior, your thinking, and your imagination. And if you don't get what you want, you have to look at it and see what it is. And a few years later, I learned from him and another therapist, psychologist by the name of Robert Resnick, a formula called E plus R equals O, which stands for there are events in your life. You then have a response to that event and that produces an outcome. And as we're recording this, we are literally living in the age of coronavirus, COVID-19. A lot of people are locked down. A lot of businesses are shuttered. A lot of people are not being able to do their normal job. A lot of people are out of work. One out of four Americans in the workplace is currently either getting unemployment or literally nothing. And so we live at a time where the event is, is pretty horrendous. We had that same kind of event during you know, 9-11, during the uh, financial breakdown in 2008, 2009, the Iraq war, you know, we can go back. And so it doesn't matter what the event is, it's our response to it, the thoughts we think about it, the imagination we have about the future that it's going to create for us. Are we going to lose our home? Are we going to lose our job? Are we not going to be able to pay the mortgage? Are we going to get foreclosed upon? Is our grandmother going to get sick? Or are we visualizing success, staying healthy, having a strong immune system, coming out of this better than not? There are a number of companies, Zoom, for example, uh, who have made a whole lot more money during this recession uh, that's going on. And there are other people doing that as well. I remember I was talking to a group of Remax uh, franchise owners during the 2008-2009 period, and almost everybody was down about 40% except one guy in the room. And I called him up to the room and I said, let me interview you. I want to find out what you're doing different. The main thing turned out it was mindset. And he said, what everyone else is doing right now is thinking, I've got to cut back. I have to advertise less. I have to do less. I can't, you know, I have to cut back on my expenses, uh, tighten my belt. It's going to be tough. He said, my, my thought for him is, I do well no matter what the economy does. So he just started with a whole different attitude toward the thing, which then affected his behavior, which affected his outcome. So the only things you can control in life, you know, we talk about managing time. You can't really manage time. You can manage your thoughts about time. You can manage your behavior in relation to time. And you can imagine, you know, your, your imagination, how you fantasize about time, what's going to happen. So we have to take responsibility to be thinking positive thoughts, you know, this is something Stephen Covey taught a lot about, and the Covey Institute still teaches in their courses. You have to be responsible for your behavior, you know, uh, thinking about the end in mind and, and you know, going, planning for the future from the, you know, the planning and present from the future and all these kind of things so that you're doing the behaviors that succeed. One of the things I did this year, I wrote the forward for two books. One was called The Billionaire Secret by a guy named Raphael Benzieg. He interviewed 21 billionaires in 17 different countries. And the other book was called Homeless to Billionaire by a guy named uh, Pierce, Ray Pierce. And he was a 19-year-old who had come to Thailand, uh, was homeless on the beaches of Phuket. And by the time he was 35, he was a multi-billionaire uh, in the real estate development there all based on reading my book, The Success Principles, one book by uh, Brian Tracy and The Secret. And the reality was it was his mindset that changed his behaviors that allowed him to get the skill sets he needed to become a billionaire. So literally all these people are talking about the importance of three things, thinking positive. They all meditated, all 21 billionaires that these people uh, that he interviewed were billionaires. And they all read, you know, we talked about reading. 
Uh, they all read voraciously, usually an hour a day. You know, John Maxwell, I know, reads an hour a day. Pretty much everyone I know that's a leader reads an hour a day. So if your behaviors are the behaviors of billionaires and millionaires, if your thoughts are the thoughts, you know, Tony Robbins says success leaves clues. And so we have tons of books of people who've been successful in management, in leadership, in uh, business, in entrepreneurship, et cetera. And so we can find out and study other people's experiences and become successful as well. Jack, thank you for that. I'm going to skip around in the book because there's literally thousands of nuggets in here. I had to pick maybe eight or 10 for our short time together. I'm going to skip to this idea again, back to W. Clement Stone, who talked to you and teach, taught you the value of writing your most important goal down and putting it in yes. your wallet. And so you spend a significant part of the book talking about goal setting and chunking it down. In this one particular instance, I believe it was you and your writing partner, Mark Victor Hansen, wrote down a goal on each of your business cards, signed them, put them in your respective wallets. And the goal was when you wrote the first Chicken Soup for the Soul book, you wrote down, and I quote, I'm so happy. Now, this is before the book was published. You'd just written it. You wrote, I am so happy selling 1.5 million copies of Chicken Soup for the Soul by December 30th, 1994. I mean, selling 1.5 copies, you know, 27 plus years ago would have been, you know, unheard of. You ended up selling 1.3 million copies, 200,000 shy of the goal. Talk about the power, and that's not the learning, of course. Learning is you sold 1.3 million copies. Talk about what you've learned around goal setting, visualizing goals, chunking them down. What advice would you give to us on realizing our goals? Well, there's actually research done by a number of people. Uh, one is if you write down your goal, uh, your, people that write down their goals, this was a study done at Georgia Tech by a professor of uh, psychology. People who write down their goals, actually write them down, uh, earn nine times more over the course of their life than people who don't. Then there was a woman up in uh, San Jose, California at Dominican University who did a study where people either had a goal and she found out that about 33% of those people actually achieved their goal. People that uh, wrote their goal down, uh, it was an, an increase. People that wrote their goal down and told somebody that they wrote it down, so they now became accountable uh, to the public for their goal, actually achieved more. And people that had an accountability partner or a mastermind group where they reported in on a regular basis, maybe a coach, maybe a mentor, uh, they actually achieved 76% of those people achieved their goal. So it was a 40% increase just in doing those simple things. So we know scientifically that writing your goal down, reviewing it regularly, being accountable to someone else who knows you have that goal. That's why I say it's important for people to post their goals. I don't have my wallet on me right now because I'm in my home. But if I were out on a street, I would open up for you. And where most people's driver's license are, I have my goal for this year, which is to enroll 10,000 people in our train the trainer program, much like Christine, who you brought on uh, into the studio before we started. And the reality is that we are getting this work out into the world. My goal is to have 1 million people training the success principles by the year 2030. So we have online certification and life certification programs to do that. But the main idea is everyone in my company knows that goal. Uh, we have a t-shirt that say one in a million. Uh, we keep that in front of us all the time. It's in my wallet. And uh, it's really critical that you keep it 
in front in front of you. You know, people that have vision boards, uh, treasure maps, where if you were to look at the door that goes out of my office, my whole door from the top to the bottom, eight feet, has images of things I want to achieve, uh, income, places I want to visit, things I want to own, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So those things are in front of me every day, top of mind, because what, what you think about, you bring about. And therefore, I want to keep it, uh, you know, present all times. So beautifully said, uh, what you think about, you bring about. Jack, when we opened our interview, you mentioned that there was a fairly scientific algorithm or process on how you and your co-authors and editors, I'm guessing publishers, picked these 220 plus chicken soup for the soul books. Can you give us a little bit of the back behind the scenes on why that was so successful and what was some of the algorithms that might help our listeners and viewers know the science behind some of your success? Well, first of all, I do I do these workshops for for best-selling authors or people who want to be bestsellers. Let me do them four times a year. And one of the things I tell everybody is if you want to be a best-selling author, you have to have stories in your book. I don't care if your book's about flipping real estate. There have to be stories that people can connect to. People Velcro to stories. That's why movies like Rocky last forever. There are stories of overcoming, stories of love, stories of, of um, you know success, stories of compassion and so forth. So with Chicken Soup for the Soul, we had 120 stories. This We, we, we stumbled into this and then it became very scientific. We had 120 stories. We only wanted 101 due to page restrictions and all of that. So I gave all the stories to 20 friends and family and staff and said, read each story and grade it on a scale of one to 10, 10 being high, you know, one being low. And uh, we're going to average that out on an Excel spreadsheet. And that'll be what we do. The stories that high, score the highest are going to go in the book. Well, that's how we did that. Well, then it became aware to us that we wanted to have universal stories. So we said, look, let's find a panel of 20 to 40 people for every book. There'll be urban, suburban, and rural, conservative and liberal, uh, religious and non-religious, different economic groups, different parts of the country, so that we could have a universal um, response to the stories. And so we had like sometimes 40, 50 people reading the books, reading and every story got graded one to 10. Then we put all those scores across and we, we, we graded it. And if a story didn't score above a nine, it rarely made it into a book. And so that's why those stories were so universally appealing mm. to people. Jack, in your book, you talk a lot about belief in yourself and the value and the currency of having belief in your skills. I was uh, talking with one of our authors recently about their social media and when to promote the book and when to put the cover in the social media. And this, this person I won't name, who's extraordinarily, enormously credible, uh, wrote to me that they hate self-promotion. And, <laughs> and, and I, I've struggled with that like hundreds of times because, you know, I'm not sure what self-promotion, where, where does self-promotion end and where does belief in yourself begin? And there's a lot of cultures, including Franklin Covey's culture, which is kind of grounded in this sense of, you know, humility and let others find value in you. Don't share the spotlight or, or show it on yourself. What advice would you give us on this maybe fine line between someone who might seem self-promotional and someone who might say, I believe in myself. I believe I can achieve maybe even more than you think I can. You're, you've been around the block a few times. Give us some guidance on that. Well, I think it all depends on the role. If you're a leader, you know, when I was a leader in the education system in Chicago, I started as a teacher and then a teacher trainer and so forth. Uh, you know, the, the, the rule of leadership was take all the blame, give all the credit to the group, the troops below. I think that level of humility, it really works in the role of leadership. I think as, a, as an author, as a, a speaker, as a trainer, 
uh, it's a different game. And so I always use the metaphor, if you had a gold mine that you found, and it was unlimited amount of gold, I mean, just unlimited, you know, wouldn't you want to tell everyone where it was? Wouldn't you want to give them the map of how to get there so they can take advantage of that? You'd be really cruel not to do that, given all the suffering that comes from people not having resources. The same thing, if you found the cure to cancer, wouldn't you want to share that with everyone you know? So for me, my life purpose statement is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy, whether that's an individual or an organization. And so I want people to know that I can do that so I can help them end suffering, have more joy, more love, more peace, more abundance, more prosperity, more productivity, whatever. It would be mean of me not to share that uh, with everyone I can. If I had all the food in town and I was the only one with it, I would want to share that with everyone who was hungry. And so I don't think it's uh, egotistical to do that. The word humility comes from the word humus, which means dirt. And so, you know, we often talk about, you know, humble farmer, uh, you know, and the, uh, the idea is you want to be not more than you are, but you also want to be not less than you are. To be less than you are is to, be, to have false humility. So I'm a very humble person when it comes to people giving me credit. I say, thank you very much. It was all you. You know, if you didn't do the work that I gave you the, the, the map for, you wouldn't have been successful. So in, th in those situations, I'm not wanting to take any credit. I really want them to take the credit for it. But when it comes to promotion and publicity, you have to be able to get out there and say, I have a useful product, a useful yeah. service, a useful technique. And here are the scientific ways of, you know, social media, et cetera, uh, to get out there and do that. I don't know if you've ever interviewed Grant Cardone. If you haven't, you should. Yeah. And he is someone who literally probably does five to 10 podcasts and interviews a day, starting around six in the morning in East Coast time. Why? Because he knows he has something that helps people and he wants to get it out there to as many people as possible. So Jack, let's revisit this, the power of belief in yourself. Any strategies that you've learned that you teach perhaps through your train the trainer program and your own courses that can help today everyone listening and watching to build the belief in themselves and make that a more powerful asset for their achieving their goals achieving their wealth achieving their influence well, there's two things about beliefs. One is removing negative limiting beliefs that are usually subconscious. There's a whole technology for that. It's a little too long to go into in a short interview. But if people want to go to jackcanfield.com, which is my website, and just, you know, register to be on my mailing list, I'm going to be doing a free call uh, several times over the next couple of months. I did one in January for 1,000 people, did another one later in a month for 1,400 people, where I take them through about a 40-minute process to go back and identify some limiting belief you started to have when you were between the ages of three and eight, and then how to identify that, release that, and replace it with a positive belief. So that's a deep work. But on, 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 the, on the more simple level of things people can start now, one is make a list of every success you've ever had. Now, I in my seminars, when I do this, when I do like a week-long seminar, I give people three days to make a list of 100 successes. That ends up like graduating first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, surviving Mrs. Jones's geometry class, graduating high school, getting my driver's license, you know, surviving basic training in the military, becoming Lance Corporal, whatever. But the point is, we have had many more successes than we've had failures. 
you know, or we wouldn't be here. And so that's one thing. It begins to build up this sense of, well, I have had successes. This is important. I teach something called the mirror exercise, which is a self-talk exercise. You have to learn to replace negative self-talk with positive self-talk. Uh, you can't get rid of negative self-talk unless you replace it with positive self-talk. Uh, otherwise, you get a vacuum. It'll pull back in the old negative thoughts. So the mirror exercise is you stand in front of a mirror at night, usually with the door closed so people don't think you're crazy, and you say three things to yourself. You start with your name, so in my case, Jack, that calls your awareness for him. Then you say, I want to acknowledge you today for three things. Number one, all your accomplishments. Then you would say, you finished that report today, you made five sales today, you got three sales calls lined up, you talked to that person who was having difficulty, uh, and rather than having to fire them, you think they're on board again now. You know, whatever it is, you set up that conference, so forth. Then you look at what disciplines did you keep? Uh, you read the Bible or you did your exercises, you, you meditated, you, you know, whatever. And then what temptations did you overcome? You didn't eat that chocolate cake. You didn't stay up till one in the morning playing words with friends or watching reruns of Breaking Bad, whatever it might be. And then you end with, I love you. Now, if you do that for 40 days in a row, you literally begin to reprogram your mind in a very powerful way. And the last thing I would say is I have a book called Tapping Into Ultimate Success. There is this thing called EFT tapping, where you tap on these nine acupuncture points while you're um, thinking of a, a negative belief you want to release. And also we have a protocol in there called replacing your inner critic with your, your inner coach, how to turn your inner critic into an inner coach. So these are some resources that are available. And then the use of affirmations, you know, I'm a wonderful person. I'm smart enough to do anything I want. I have all the talent and skills I need to accomplish any goal. And so there are a lot of affirmations in my book that you can also use for that. Jack, in the book, you also write a lot about um, it's never too late. I think it was Ray Kroc who was 52 when he launched McDonald's. Stephen Covey was 56 when he published The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, there's countless stories of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond that have not just reinvented themselves or broken negative patterns, but they've had amazing influence and success. You share a great story about a writer, I think her name was Catherine Lanigan. I wasn't aware of her. Would you kind of share her story in the context of inspiring everybody who's watching and listening on this idea of it's not, it's never too late? Yeah, Catherine Lanigan was a woman who was very talented as a writer in high school. She got a scholarship to go to a major college in Ohio. And because she was so talented, she got into an advanced writing symposium in her first year, her freshman year. And it was a visiting professor from Harvard. And she got her first paperback and it said, F, see me after class. And so she went up and she said, how come I got an F? I've always been told I was a good writer. And he said, well, I don't know. I, someone's been lying to you. You have no talent. And she was planning to major in journalism because she always wanted to be a journalist. And um, he said, you know, I, 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 I can advise you to drop out of this seminar and, um, you know, you're wasting your parents' money, you're wasting the school's money, and you should change your major. And she said, well, if I drop out of the seminar, I might lose my scholarship because I don't have enough course credits. And he said, well, I'll make a deal with you. I'll let you stay in the course. I'll give you a C if you promise to change your major to something other than journalism. And so she made the deal. I call it the deal with the devil. And so for 15, 16, 17 years, something like that, she didn't write. She lived in Texas in a town that she would describe as so boring that when it would rain, people would go down to the gas station to watch the oil slicks form. That's how boring this little town in Texas was. And she didn't write. And uh, one day there was a murder in a town nearby, and she was over there at the Costco or the Walmart uh, buying stuff. 
and she went into the um, restaurant, like a Howard Johnson, something like that. And there were a bunch of journalists there who were covering this story because it was a biker gang who had killed this judge. And she recognized some of them from television. And so she went up to this table where some of them were sitting, like from CNN, ABC, whatever. And she said, I really want to acknowledge you guys because you are you're journalists. And I always wanted to be a writer. And, and you guys did what I always wanted to do. And this one guy said, BS, if you wanted to be a writer, you would have written. And she said, no, I mean, I was told by good authority, I had no talent. And he said, well, whose authority was that? She said, well, he was a Harvard professor. I said, oh, my God, professors, they don't know. They're all academic. You know, I'm a writer. I've written novels. I've written nonfiction books. I've written all kinds of screenplays. And I write for TV. Tell you what, here's my business card. If you think you can write, go home and write something. Send it to me. I'll let you know if it's any good. So she spent a year writing a novel. And she sent it to him. He liked it. He sent it to his agent in New York. He called her and said, I liked your book. I sent it to my agent in New York, and um, I think you have some talent. So a week later, the agent in New York calls her and says, I love your book. Would you let me represent it? She was like flabbergasted. She said, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, that first book, which she wrote, was a romance novel. It was called Romancing the Stone, which became a major movie, which made millions of dollars for her and the actors in it, you know, uh, Michael Douglas and Catherine can't remember her last name right now. But the point being, she went on now to write, about, I think, about 27 novels. She's made millions of dollars. But we lost her talent for 17 years because she didn't believe in herself. She let someone else talk her out of what she believed in herself. So never let anyone talk you out of your goal. I'll tell you one last story about never starting too late. I have a story in another book about a woman who only started to run when she was 55 years old. She'd never run before. Her husband wanted to do a 10K. She said, let's practice running around the backyard. They had a fairly large backyard. They ran around at once. She fell on the ground wheezing, thought she would die. Name's Helen Klein. I met her, so I know the story. And um, anyway, she said, that's disgusting. She was a nurse, totally out of shape, smoker, stopped smoking, said every day I'm going to walk or run or crawl one additional lap until eventually she was running many laps around the backyard. Then she started running blocks from her house. Every day she'd run an extra block before she turned around. She ran that 10K, came in last, but got hooked on running. I met her when she was 82. She was uh, running marathon still in like, uh, you know, two hours and 40 minutes. She was the oldest woman to ever complete the triathlon. She had run something like 75 extreme races, you know, like 75 to 100 miles. She'd run across the Sahara Desert. She'd done echo challenges that had to do with rowing and rappelling down mountains and bicycling and swimming and you know, everything. Started when she was 55 years old. And now she's in her 80s and she's still doing it. So the point being, you're never too old to start. You just have to start. Someone once said the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. Yeah. The second best right. time is now. Right. I agree with that. Right. So well said. Jack, we could spend hours listening to you. It's so gracious of you to give us your time today for On Leadership. A couple of final questions. One of the sure. concepts and models I liked the most in your recent book, The Success Principles, is this, uh, you call it the self-talk endless loop. And it has this model of my self-talk, my self-image, my performance. Would you kind of teach that to our listeners and viewers today and the impact it can have on us becoming more successful in our own endeavors? Yeah, whenever you talk to yourself, you create words. Those words create pictures. Pictures are very, very powerful. If we have more time, I would have everyone stand up and imagine 
uh, close your eyes and have you walk to the edge of a terrace on the top of the tallest building in the world, like 127 stories up. I'd have you look down. There's no railing at the edge. And everyone in the room, their heart would start to beat faster. Their palms would get sweaty, whatever. And so our body cannot tell the difference between a real event and an imagined event. Words create pictures. We always heard, you know, pictures worth 10,000 words. That's why visualization is such a powerful tool for manifestation. The problem is many of us are visualizing the wrong thing. We're visualizing ourselves not being able to do something. So let's say we're about to give a speech and we say, I hope I don't make a mistake. I hope I don't forget my joke. I hope I don't forget the ending story. Well, the unconscious does not hear the word not. And so what you're really affirming is forgetting the ending story. And then you start imagining the ending story being forgotten. As a result of the image, you get up on stage, you forget the ending story. And then what you do is you say, see, I knew I'd forget the ending story. And you reinforce the self-talk that started this whole mess in the beginning. So if instead you can say, I'm going to do great. I'm going to remember the story. People are going to love it. I'm going to get a standing ovation. Then you close your eyes. You see yourself giving a great talk. People are applauding. You're walking off the stage. The promoter is saying, great job. We love it. Thank you. We're going to bring you back next year. Everyone, you know, the evaluations are all great, whatever. And then you say, see, I knew I'd do a great job. And then what happens, you have the loop that you want to have, which is the positive loop instead of the negative loop. Jack, final question. Uh, your own success is undeniable. Of course, success is a relative term, right? For some, it might be financial. Some, it might be legacy, relationships, peace you know, uh, discovering their purpose and mission, recognizing that success is relative. When you think back around all of the books you've written, programs you've taught, speeches you've given, green rooms you've been in with other successful people, what are some of the top attributes? You've listed some of them earlier. What are three or four of the top attributes of people who have been successful at accomplishing what they wanted to do that everybody, if they could employ them, would give them a similar or same level of success against their own criteria? Number one, and we started this, we take 100% responsibility. They're not blamers and complainers. They, they just get on with it. They're very clear about their purpose, mission, vision, values, and goals. They are uh, people who are um, action-oriented. They, they basically will have a plan, but they're not addicted to their plan. They'll take action and they respond to feedback. Feedback is the breakfast of champions, as Ken Blanchard wrote, the one minute manager said. And so many people are afraid of feedback. They don't ask for feedback. They get angry at the feedback, et cetera. They avoid feedback. So feedback is very important. I think it's important to visualize your success, get your whole team with the same definition of success. I think, you know, you have to define your goals as specific and measurable, have everyone on board. I just worked for a pizza company, national franchise pizza company, where even the people that were cleaning the tables knew what the franchise owner's goal was, how many dollars they wanted to make, how many tables they needed to turn every night. So you want everyone on board with your vision. So leaders have to have clear visions and stories to inspire people with those visions. Persistence is critical. There's going to be a lot of failure. You have to be able to say no to failure. I would say the other big thing I see over and over among people that are super successful is the willingness to ask and to hear the words no and keep going. Howard Schultz, who started Starbucks, asked 247 people to invest in Starbucks so he could start his first Starbucks coffee shop and then start franchising it out. 217 rejections over a course of a year before he got enough yeses before he could start Starbucks. That's now worth $3 billion. So the reality is, I would say those are the key things I would say. I would say the last two things would be having a mastermind group. This is something Napoleon Hill wrote about in, the, in his book, Think and Grow Rich. 
something I write about in my book. And having an accountability partner. So many people, uh, either they're way up in an organization, like they're at sea level, and so they don't have too many people that are, are they have to report to on a daily basis and talk about their, are they achieving their goals or not? A lot of people listening sometimes to these things are entrepreneurs. They don't have a boss. And so what happens is you have to have somebody at the same level as you or above that you check in with, I think, daily, five days a week for a five-minute call in the morning. Commit to five actions you're going to take that day toward your breakthrough goals. And then um, the next day, see if, you know, report if you did them or not. So you're being accountable. And then have your mastermind group you meet with every two weeks where you can brainstorm solutions to ideas. So you have more mind power than just yours. I would say those were the key things I see that I could rattle off really quickly. Jack, so invaluable. Is there any one person, situation, conversation, discussion, decision that you would attribute to perhaps earlier in your life that was a massive pivot point for your own success? Anything happened that was a, that was a transitional time for you? I think that first interview with W. Clement Stone, uh, he told me to watch less television and read more. I talked about 100% responsibility like we talked about. Told me I should exercise more regularly than I was doing, so that was valuable. I think the decision to write my first book changed my life. Uh, the decision to write Chicken Soup for the Soul, which came from people just saying, that story you told about the puppy, that story you told about the Girl Scout, you know, that sold 3,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. Is that in a book anywhere? And I think that um, if I, if I kind of say the thing that I would basically attribute most of my success to is I listened to the guidance that I was receiving inside call it from spirit, God, the universe. And also when people were saying things outside, when it was a pattern over and over and over, I was hearing the same thing, then I paid attention and I acted. Jack Canfield, author of nearly a half billion books, um, Guinness World Record holder, such an abundant time today. Your new book, The Success Principles, the 10th anniversary edition, how to get from where you are to where you want to be. Thank you for joining Franklin Covey today on leadership. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. This is a masterful book. And I, I, I've mentioned you before. I got some cred, like Jack. I've read several thousand books in my 50 couple years um, uh, on the planet. This is a masterpiece. I've got it tabbed in so many places. I'm going to go back and review it again as I'm in some transition in my own life around what are my goals, my own writing, my speaking, what do I want to accomplish, believing in myself. I highly recommend this book. Phenomenal. We're honored you joined us today, and we'll see you back here next week for a new episode on leadership.